Our scripture reading for today um, comes from the book of Luke, chapter 6, from verse 12 to 36. You can follow along with me in your bulletin on page 8, and I'll read. One of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciple, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your um, tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel of Luke uh, focuses on the life of Jesus and what it, mean, what it means to be saved, what it means to be a Christian. And Luke emphasizes then that the type of king that the people in those days expected versus the type of king that Jesus actually came to be was totally different. 
He was a totally different type of king over a totally different uh, type of kingdom, a totally different type of community. Jesus came to build a very, very different type of community. And so in this passage, we're going to see uh, three things. We're going to learn three things uh, about this type of community that Jesus is building. One, we're going to see a picture of it. Two, what it looks like then. We're going to describe that. And lastly, then, uh, how do you get into that community? How do you become a part of that community? Uh, a picture, what it looks like, and then the power to be a part of that community. First, we're going to look at the picture or the potential of this community. Verses 12 to 16. On the mountain, Jesus is on a mountain, and after some intense prayer, he, out of the group of disciples that he had, he chooses 12 men. And these men are going to be his leaders. These men are going to be his disciples. There's apostles. And in verse 17, they all come down uh, off the mountain. And in verse 18, Jesus is teaching them and he's healing people. All, there's a huge crowd. Disciples all over uh, from Judea, uh, Jerusalem, they're all over the place. And, and they're gathered uh, from Judea all the way to Tyre and Sidon. And, and now th- think about this. This is really important. Why, do they do th- why is this important? In order to understand the importance of this passage, you need to go back to the Old Testament. And look at the last time that something like this happened. And that was in the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai. You see, at Mount Sinai, God calls together the 12 tribes. He gathers the 12 tribes. In the Old Testament, you have 12 tribes. New Testament, you have 12 disciples. There's a lot of continuity there. Whenever you see the number 12, it represents the whole of God's people. This is God's church. And so in the Old Testament at Sinai, God is gathering what would really become the church, uh, uh, his church, gathered. And at Sinai, God sends Moses down from this mountain with his word, with his law. This is the law, the Ten Commandments. Now, what's the purpose of the law? People always say, well, the law, it's got to be uh, a way for, for us to find God. It's, it's a way for us to know who God is. It's a way for us to become saved if we obey. But look, if you ever read the book of Exodus, God doesn't uh, give his people the law first, and then he says, well, if you obey this well, depending on how well you obey, I'll save you. I'll rescue you from slavery. That's not what happens. Rather, what happens is God's people are enslaved. They're in Egypt. For 400 years, they were enslaved. And what God does is he rescues them first. He brings them across the Red Sea. He brings them to Sinai. And then he says, here's the law. Why? These are 12 tribes, a loose collection of people coming together. In slavery for centuries, now God has redeemed them, rescued them, brought them together. And he says, now you're going to be a nation. Laws define a nation. He says, you're going to be my people. You're going to be my nation. God brings these 12 tribes together. They were once slaves. And now in Exodus chapter 19, at Sinai, he says, I brought you here on eagle's wings. And he gives them the law. Why? So that you would be my treasured possession. He doesn't say, so you'll be saved. This is how you'll be my treasured possession. In other words, I'm going to make you into a people, my people, my nation. This is a new society, a new humanity, a new, genuine, authentic, uh, alternate community. Why? Well, just look at the world. Nations today, I mean, even now, are at war against each other. Families hate each other. Husbands and wives in families are at each other's throats. Siblings are at war with each other. The world is broken, and the world continues to entropically unravel, and it's all because our relationship with God has been broken by sin. 
And God is saying, I saved you. I will restore you. And when your relationship with me is restored, it's going to undo all the brokenness that exists in all of your other relationships. So Jesus, when Jesus comes down from this mountain, see, Moses, he gave his people the law. And so here, Jesus, uh, what does he do? He gives them the Sermon on the Mount. It's what Luke, uh, it's summarized in this passage in the book of Luke. And it's famously known as the Sermon on the Mount because he was off the mountain. This is his teaching on the law. Moses gives them the law. Jesus gives them the law. But think about this. The, the law, it's not just some manual on uh, morals. Yes, there are ethics. Yes, you see morals in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But what Jesus is really giving us is a picture of a new reality that goes beneath that visible reality that we see. This is a picture of a new society. This is that picture of that new humanity that Jesus is building. Verse 17, there's an invitation. How do you know that? Look at who's gathered there. There are Jews, people from Judea, Jerusalem, but there's also non-Jews. There are Gentiles there. People from Tyre and Sidon. Not to mention the 12 disciples themselves. If you actually look at a profile of each of those disciples, very, very, very different. What is it saying? The gospel transcends racial boundaries. The gospel transcends ethnic boundaries. The gospel transcends cultural boundaries, geographic boundaries. Today, we have blue states fighting red states, people in the, in the blue fighting people in the red within a state. But the gospel transcends politics here. The gospel transcends uh, socioeconomic class or status. This is remarkable. Why? Think about this. If you've ever explored the Muslim faith, if you ever want to be a real Muslim, then you need to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. Mecca is the central location for the Muslim faith. And you need to learn Arabic. I don't know if you knew this. You need to learn Arabic. Because the Arabic version of the Muslim Quran is the only version that's considered divine, that's only considered of, of God. You see that? You want to really understand Buddhism? You want to understand Confucianism? You need to go to East Asia. That's the central location from where this faith model was born. And you need to understand that culture in that language. In fact, a lot of the Buddhist and, and Confucianist uh, cultures, the language has been shaped by the faith itself. So you need to understand the language. But Christianity, you see, it started in the Near East. That was the central place where Christianity was birthed. And then it moved and migrated throughout the Roman Empire. That was the central and became the central location for Christianity and the church would propagate. And then it translated migrated over to Africa and then to Europe and then over to the New World. That became the central place in North America. And now they're saying, hey, it's migrating out of North America and it's moving to South America, it's moving to Asia and Africa as the new centers of faith. Christianity has no true central location and the Bible, it can be read or translated into any language and still be considered the word of God. You see, What Jesus is saying here is when you enter a relationship with me, it's not just an individual thing. I'm bringing you into a stronger, more unique, a deeper uh, community that's not bound by race, not bound by culture or ethnicity or geography or status or socioeconomic status for that matter or class. I'm gonna bring you into a deeper community that's, that's been made beautiful by my power. In other words, and this is the first point, Christianity, to be a Christian on one hand, it needs to be individual. You must have a personal relationship with God. So it has to be individual to some degree, but that's not the end point, that's the beginning. 
You see? You're brought into then a new society. You are brought into a, a new humanity, a new community, so tightly woven together, it's called a body. What does that mean? Now, Philadelphia is nationally known as one of the best cities if you're a foodie, which I am. I mean, and we get to enjoy lots of great restaurants and types of food here. When you discover a new restaurant, yes, you savor uh, every bite. Yes, you enjoy these meals on your own, but you never go alone. You know why? Because you'll never enjoy it like when you share that meal with someone else. Same goes for music or movies or books. It's all the same. The very act of sharing something that you enjoy is part of the experience of enjoying it. In fact, it completes the experience altogether. Why? Because we're created for community. Because we're created in the image of God. And God by nature, by nature, God doesn't just have perfect community. God is community by nature. He is perfect community by nature. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. This is the doctrine of the Trinity being applied in real life. So when you're longing for community, we long for community. That's why we long for community. You're actually reflecting that part of God, right, and our relationship with God because God by nature is community. When you long for community, you're reflecting that part of who God is. When you long for community, when you long for intimacy, that, that forever partnership, it's because we're created to reflect the nature and the character of God. Look, today, we've pushed God to the periphery and we still want community. In fact, that's why we want community today. We push God over to the periphery of our lives to the point where it doesn't really impact our day, impact our major decisions or our lives in any significant way. And when we push God to the periphery of our lives, life then becomes actually atomized. Our families become atomized. Our, our lives, our social circles, even in the church, become individualized. And so what happens, and that's very counter to what the Bible is saying here in this passage, but when things become individualized, um, especially as a society, it's because we forgot God. And, and so you become not just introverted, uh, so to speak, you, the, the selfishness that we're born with actually starts to take over when you're individualized, when you're atomized in society. And so because we forgot God, now we've lost the image of who we're created to reflect. And because God is community and we lost God, now we're longing for community without God. So we're longing for it in all these other places, even in the church, we push God to the periphery and we're longing for the community, which is the outcome, the fruit of faith. And yet we push God off to the side, to the periphery. He doesn't even impact the very relationship we have inside. You see that? And so when we do that, what happens is, oh man, we wanted it on our own terms. And we're miserable. We're absolutely miserable. Today there are people, I mean, you may, you may differ. You say, well, you know, I don't really care what people think of me. I, uh, it shouldn't matter what anyone thinks of you. All, the only thing that matters is what I think of myself. Really? Really? Try it. Look, I think my voice is pretty good, especially in the shower. My friends tell me I should be a writer, all right? The point is, you don't even know yourself. You can't know yourself without people that you're intimately tied to and tied with, without community. No true musician or artist or writer, no self-respecting professional or businessman. I mean, even if you have the most selfish motives, the most selfish intentions, you will never be successful without the validation and counsel of community, a community we need it. 
We're designed for it, you see? If you're a leader in any kind of capacity, you would understand. I mean, look around. Most of our problems, even in the church today, most of our problems are, are not an issue of philosophy of ministry or doctrine. People are just angry at each other. They're competing against each other. They're gossiping about each other. They're acting selfishly in their circles. They're trying to push their agenda, push their opinions. They're, they're offending one another, and they're, and they're falling out with each other. Maybe it's a misunderstanding or misinterpretation or miscommunication or dishonoring. Society is falling apart. What's the hope? Jesus says, follow me, and you will see the potential, a glimpse of a new reality and a new humanity. Now, secondly, what's it look like? What's it like? Jesus says, this new society, this new community that I'm building, it's, it's got totally different values. And so because it operates on a foundation of new values, different values, there's a totally different way of then how those values play out in society. It's going to be a com- completely different way of how you handle your relationships with other people. So we're going to look at the values themselves, and then we're going to look at how those values impact community. First, let's look at the values. This is how Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount at least in the book of Luke. He begins with blessings and curses, blessings and woes, verses 20 to 26. And Jesus, he's referencing two different worldviews when it comes to values, two different value models or value systems. Verse 20 says, I'm bringing a new kingdom. I've brought a new kingdom. What does that mean? At the least, he's talking about, I'm bringing in a new administration. Now think about this. We have the luxury as, as a society, we get to see a new leader uh, at the highest order come in every four or eight years. You get to see that many times in your lifetime. And almost immediately when this happens, when that, when that change or transition happens, the White House is completely overhauled. I don't know if you know this. The staff is completely overhauled. The, the, the West Wing, all the members of the West Wing, completely overhauled. Right? The aides are completely overhauled. Even the furniture, I don't know if you know this, even the furniture is completely overhauled. Any vestige of the previous administration is wiped away. You see that? And this is what happens when a new administration comes in and replaces the old. The former leader has certain values. The former leader may have valued this, but I do not. The, the new leader didn't value this, but I do. Vice versa. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, let me tell you what I value because it's a new order. It's a new society I'm building. And so verses, verse 23 and down, he begins with four curses. He says, this is what the world, this is what the old administration, I'm overhauling this administration. This is what that old world valued, but not me. Woe to you if you are rich. Woe to you if you are well-fed. Woe to you if you laugh. Woe to you if all men speak well of you. In other words, what does it mean to be rich? He's saying, those of you who crave power and wealth, those of you, he says, woe to you if you're well-fed. That means, that might mean you have food, but, but what it connotes in the language is that if you have leisure, you're, you're so well-fed, you can live a le- leisurely life, a life without suffering, comfort, you never go hungry. Woe to you if you laugh. The Greek word for laugh here is boasting or ridiculing people who are the losers, people who've lost to you. You gloat and you, and you ridicule them. So it's to be proud, to be successful over them. And lastly, woe to you when men speak well of you. 
you know, it's, it's like a common phrase, oh, I just want to be seen, I just want to be recognized, I just want to be known. Woe to you if you crave status in life. Jesus is saying, if you're constantly working to earn power, to earn wealth, to earn a, a life of comfort or leisure, if you're constantly working to earn a, lot, a successful life or to be seen or known, to have a good reputation, you are cursed. My values are completely different, he says. I'm overturning these values on their head. What are they? Verses 20 to 22. Blessed are the poor. That's the powerless, the helpless, the weak. Blessed if you're hungry. He says you're going to be satisfied. You know what that means? Uh, that, that means you're going to have sufficient food one day. You're going to be comforted. Blessed, you're blessed if you're grieving. In other words, if you're grieving over losses, grieving because you're defeated, one day you will laugh victoriously and you're blessed if you're excluded or cast out, if you're insulted, one day you will rejoice. What is he saying? He says the world values wealth and comfort and success and status, but in my administration, in my kingdom, the things of the world, the things that the world values are unimportant to me. And I'm attracted to what the world devalues, what the world finds unimportant. So I'm going to treasure weakness. I'm going to treasure people who suffer. I'm going to treasure people who fail. I'm going to treasure the outcast, the excluded. In other words, I'm completely overturning the world's values. And so a Christian, if you're a Christian, because you treasure me, he says, because you treasure Jesus, you will be attracted to what the world is repulsed by. And you're going to be skeptical of what the world desires or values. Is that you? Are you attracted to what the world devalues? And are you skeptical of what the world values? Wealth and comfort, success and status. On one hand, Jesus does not say, I want you to pursue poverty. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I want you to pursue suffering. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I want you to pursue being a failure. I'll just be lazy. Don't do anything. Don't do any work. I want you to pursue being excluded, being outcast. But what he, he doesn't say that. But what he does say is, if you do experience these things, savor it, treasure it. It's going to shape your life if you come to me. On one hand, Jesus isn't saying, I want you to refuse wealth. He's not saying wealth is evil. I want you to receive, refuse comfort. In fact, he says, someday you'll be comforted. So he does, he's not saying I want you to refuse wealth or comfort or success or a good reputation, but what he does say is, don't make them your identity. They are illusions. I want you to be wary of these things. I want you to be skeptical of these things. In other words, a personal relationship with Jesus gives us a freedom so powerful, gives you new eyes to be able to see beneath the veneer of your visible reality. Uh, the gospel gives you a freedom that's so powerful and so real. It's a new reality. And so it's such a, it's such a freedom so powerful that, that wealth and power and comfort and success and the approval of others is no longer, just no longer controls you. Now notice, <clears throat> for example, he says in verse 21, if you weep now, you're blessed. Nowhere in the world do you ever associate weeping with blessing. Nowhere do you see that. Only here, but Jesus says, in my kingdom, a personal relationship with me is so powerful 
that you can have a joy that is not diminished by your suffering or sorrow, but actually magnified and intensified because of it. There's a joy. There's a lasting joy. There's a lasting satisfaction. You know the Greek word for that is what? It's blessing. That's the word. There's a joy and blessing. There's a joy and satisfaction that gets stronger the more you get weaker. You're more filled as a result even though you go hungry. There's great victory even though you experience defeat. There's great, there's great uh, inclusion and a sense of wholeness and a sense of intimacy with God. The more you feel outcast, the more you feel betrayed. You see that? And, and what he's saying is that reality leads to a a wisdom and a softness. He's not saying, hey, don't seek these things. Don't seek poverty. Don't seek suffering. Don't desire it. No, but when it comes, there's because you have this reality that's beneath the visible reality. Because you have this reality, there's a wisdom and a softness and a freedom. That's power. It's powerful. And if you're free psychologically or emotionally, if you're free from these things, uh, free from the control of power or comfort, success or status, then you can be socially free. You can be relationally free. You can love anyone. You can love anyone through anything. Your range of love, your definition of love will become broader and wider and higher and longer and deeper. You see that? The foundation of this new society is built on different values on the inside, which then shapes and builds a unique relationship with other people on the outside. That's the fruit. Your relationships are a fruit of what's really going on inside. You got bad relationships in your life? And it's always everyone else's fault? See, one of the hardest things about being a Christian is you have to face yourself first. It's the hardest thing to do. What does that mean? When people say, you know, the problem with Christianity in this day and age, very intolerant, it's very exclusive. You know, because Jesus says, you need to have a personal relationship with me in order to get access to God. That, that Jesus is the only way in this day and age. I mean, that sounds really intolerant and exclusive. But notice in verses 27 to 28, is Jesus referring to people who just disagree with you? No. He says, I'm talking about your enemies. These are people who want blood. They hate you. They want to kill you. The world says you should curse those people. You should, you, should, you should gloat when they are ruined. You should seek their ruin. But Jesus says in verse 28, you need to bless them. I want you to pray for them. Does that sound exclusive to you? The world says you got to protect yourself, preserve your life, preserve yourself. It's all about your advancement, no matter at whose cost. Jesus says, I want you to develop a burden for these people. I want you to develop a heart for people, even those people who hate you. Seek their protection. Does that sound exclusive to you? Remember, Wealth and comfort, your success, your, your status, your reputation. If this is what you value, well, then it explains why when those things are threatened, you're going to get anxious. When those things are threatened, you're going to get angry. You're going to fight. You see? Because th- why? Because those things define you. Those things make up a sense of worth. You see that? They define who you are. They're your identity. But Jesus says, I want you to pray that your enemies will flourish. He says, don't just pray for them. Don't just pray for their good. In fact, I want you to love them and I want you to do good. Does that sound exclusive to you? Does that sound intolerant to you? Well, some of you here in this room, are you saying then we should just become doormats? People just walk all over us, let them sin against you and let them get away with it? No. 
Well, then what does verse 29 mean? Turn the other cheek. It's one of those taken out of context passages in in the Bible. In ancient times, in ancient culture, you didn't shake your hands to greet somebody. That's what we do in Western culture. You see, in ancient times, they kissed. They embraced. They turned their cheek and they kissed. So Jesus is saying, if somebody hates you, somebody hurts you, somebody punches you, Always put yourself in a posture and a position to welcome them back. Turn the cheek. You know, turn the cheek and put yourself in a position and a posture of vulnerability in a way where there will always be some avenue for people to come back to you. You see that? Welcome them. Yes, you address their sin. In fact, that's why they punch you sometimes, don't they? Yes, you confront them. That's why they punch you sometimes. That's why they hate you, but always be ready to forgive. Welcome them back. You see, when we're wronged, that's not what we do. We desire to punish them. We say, I want justice. It's like a very selfish form of justice. I want justice. Why? You know why? If you're honest with yourself, because it feels good when you get even, doesn't it? When that other person suffers, you're like, oh, oh, I feel bad for that person. But in your heart, you're glad. There's a part of you that's glad feels good to get even. You say, that's justice. But Jesus says, I want you to pray for their preservation. I want you to do good. You know why? The re- why, why is it like that for us? When our enemies get blessed, you know, if you have a falling out with somebody and maybe a year or two later you hear that they're doing really well, for some reason that hurts you. You personalize that success. That enemy success becomes personalized, and you feel, you feel bad about that for some reason. We hurt. And Jesus says this, I want you to absorb the pain that you think they deserve. I want you to put them in a position where they can be forgiven. I want you to put yourself in a posture and in a position where you can forgive. I want you to pray that they will flourish. I want you to bless them. That's what it means, that they would be satisfied in their lives. So when they curse you, I want you to pray for them. Does that sound exclusive to you? Does that sound intolerant? Friends, dear friends, dear, dear friends, you came here, a lot of you came here, most of you, Most of you that I've talked to have come here and you said, something special is happening in this church. God is doing something really, really special here. Don't become a barrier to that special thing that God is doing, okay? Look, at your age and stage right now, 10 years from now, don't say something you're like, why did I do that? Don't start closing yourself off from people today that something that you're gonna regret five years, 10 years from now. God is bringing you together to be a new society, a new humanity, a new uh, community where you sacrifice the things that that oftentimes drive people apart because we've all been saved and we've we've all experienced the sheer grace of God through the gospel. Jesus says, I'm gonna give you the resource. I'm gonna give you the power that you need to be able to be a part of that community. What is that power, to be a part of this kind of community? You see in the last two verses, the end of the passage, Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good. I want you to lend and expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. What is he saying? How do you live like this? 
The only way you can live like this is something powerful. I see we're always waiting for, for the other person to change. We're always waiting for uh, a group of people to change. Then I'll, I'll let them into my life. What Jesus is saying here is something powerful has to happen to you in order for you to be able to handle this kind of community, to be able to handle community like this. This is very important because most people here would say they came to our church because they want community. I've heard that just about with every, anybody I've talked to at Metro. Over 11 years, I just want community. I just want community. The problem is the closer community gets to you, we start to say, I don't want community. We start to reject community. We don't want people speaking into our lives. We don't want people telling us what, what they see of us. You see, that's the big problem. We tend to push that away. We say, no, no, I'm going to, and we tend to move towards the praise. We tend to move towards the acceptance, the people out there who love us. You see, it's really important because real community isn't just something that you earn, something that you work towards or fit into. You do have to work towards it. Even Acts chapter two, they say you got to work towards oneness. But that oneness is not based on what you desire, what you're looking for in your friends. That's the problem. We, so much, we want all of that, but then what we really want is we want what we want out of our friendships. That's the problem. This kingdom is not designed to fit into your understanding of community. Something powerful has to happen in your life first. What is that? A couple things. One, anybody that ever talked to at Metro, We'll say this, I'm sure anybody that you've ever met or encountered that, whose life has changed or is being renewed right now in our church, they'll tell you, it doesn't happen without them saying, I've developed a radical understanding of my sin. That's gotta happen. Look at the way Jesus uses the word sinner, verse 32 and verse 33 and verse 34. He says, even sinners can love. Even sinners can do good to people who do good to them. Even sinners can lend, expecting to get paid back in full. In other words, most kinds of love is like that. Give and take, compromise, you see. Uh, you lend, you get paid back. Jesus, don't be like that. Don't be like the sinners. Well, then how should we be? In verse 35, he says, I want you to be like the sons of the Most High, who is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. The most, the most High is kind to who? The good people? The moral people? The politically astute people? The obedient people? No. He's talking about us. We are the ungrateful. We are the evil. On one hand, Jesus says, don't be like sinners. But on the other hand, he says, you are ungrateful and you are evil. You're actually worse than those sinners. What is he saying? Here it is. This is what he's saying. He's saying, we think sin is just about breaking rules. Ten commandments. But Jesus is saying, you need to go deeper. Because sin goes deeper than that. Because here's what sin really is. It's refusing to surrender to Jesus. That's why we sin. That's why there are acts of sin. That's why we're disobedient. That's why we're rebellious. Ever since the days of the Garden of Eden, it's a refusal to surrender to the kingship of Jesus because we're using other things. We long for other things that we believe are gonna save us. You see that? Why do we value wealth? Why do we value comfort so much? Why do we value success? I just need to be successful. I need to, have, I need to be loved. I need to have the approval of people around me. We want these things. We want to earn. We don't even like, we don't even want charity. We want to earn these things. Why? Because if we do, they will define us. 
We say this is gonna be the defining point of my career. We, we want these, we want our successes, our victories to define us. They're gonna make us, and if they define us and make us, they will save us. Well, then you're gonna pay a price for that. You're gonna pay a price for that wealth that you earn. You're gonna pay it with your depression at times, your anger at times, your anxiety at times. It's unending. You're gonna pay a price for that comfort. You're gonna put yourself in very, very uncomfortable situations for prolonged periods of time, doing things that you were just miserable doing for that comfort. You're gonna pay a price for, for, uh, for that success. Oh, there's gonna be anxiety and fighting and, and depression. There's anger and jealousy, you see that? There's snobbishness, you see that? You're gonna pay a price for, for, that, for that status. You're going to be covering things up about yourself. You're constantly hiding from people. Friends, ever since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, what's the first thing they did? They realized they were naked. They were covering over their shame. They hid. You think when God was asking Adam, where are you? You think it's because he didn't know? He wants Adam to know that for the first time in history, man is hiding from God. And ever since then, we've been hiding from each other. Our clothing is representative It's the beginning point of our desire to always be righteous, to be acceptable and approved by others. It's because we've lost that community with God. You see that? And so we're going to cover ourselves up. We're going to judge other people. We're going to step over other people. We're going to ridicule and gloat and make fun of people, be jealous of people, envious. We're constantly lying about who we are. Not a single person in this room has an honest resume. True, right? We do that for that status because we value that reputation and status. And that's why when we actually do get it, we are not grateful. We are always entitled. We are always, and we're evil. I mean, the things that go through your mind when you look at other people, especially who are better or worse than you, what goes through your mind? We are evil people. We are willing to step over people, whatever it takes to get ahead. And that's why we can't ever genuinely love other people or bless other people or pray for our enemies. It's not a sign of strength. It's a sign of weakness. We can't turn our cheek. We can't sacrifice our tunic when someone takes the clothes. We can't walk that extra mile. You see that? It is impossible to elevate people who we believe don't deserve it. We are too unforgiving and vengeful and, and competitive. We're too envious and jealous. We're too held captive by the things that the world values. Now, Jesus says, the sinners, even the sinners do that. Anyone and everyone can do the kind of love where you expect to get out what you put in. It's give and take. You know why? Because it's not about them, it's about you. It's not for them, it's for you, it's for yourself. So if comfort and wealth and power and success and status, these things are the grounds, these things are the foundation for your salvation, these things are going to make me. These things are going to be the things I identify myself with. That's going to be my savior. Then you're going to become unloving and unkind and selfish and gloating and unforgiving. And you're just going to step on people and you're going to smoosh them into the ground. And life is going to just harden you. Religious people. I mean, it's my personal belief that we have more religious people than Christians in the church. We have people who grew up in the church, but they don't really know God. And they, if sin is really defined by people who are going to surrender their lives to the kingship of God in Jesus, you know, as opposed to looking to other things as their savior, then we don't have a lot of Christians in the church. We don't. How do religious people demonstrate love? It's usually out of sense of superiority. 
You know, it's the high people looking at the lower people and saying, well, I'm gonna love you, right? I'm gonna share and, you know, and a lot of times it's to, it's to gloat. Friends, if you do that out there, I mean, we're doing an outreach thing next week, right? If that's what you're doing out there, they sniff it an instant. I have a friend, I mean, a person in the church, uh, not, not too long ago, um, who told me, um, I love these outreach events because I like to take my kids with them. I want them to see how fortunate they are that they don't live like those people over there. That's the heart. And if you love like that, that's not genuine love. You're doing that for yourself. You want your kids to say, well, I I have a good life. I'm blessed. What are you valuing again? Are you blessed or cursed? That's the question that Jesus is asking each of every one of us here. When you love out of a sense of superiority, you're never going to have genuine community. You may give, you may help other people, but only to the degree that you don't have to demonstrate your own humility and weakness. You see that? Only to the degree that gives you something, something out of it. But think about it. Irreligious people, that's religious people. Irreligious people do that too. They're always covering over themselves and fighting for power and comfort and success and, and status. They do that too. It's the same. That's what I'm trying to say. And Jesus is saying, until you realize that you are ungrateful, that you are evil, your, that your heart is no different than anyone else, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. That's the only prerequisite to receiving the grace that we actually need, to receiving the, the salvation that we need. We have to admit, I am a sinner, and I am worse than I ever imagined. I am ungrateful, I am entitled, I am evil, and it's pervasive. Like, I can't, contr- I can't flip that switch on and off. I'm, I'm you know, that good switch or, or, or off switch, Sin is not just a series of actions or acts. It is all controlling, all pervasive. That is a radical view of sin. But think about that. There's a second part to this. He says, but you're the sons of the Most High. And so you receive the mercy of God. This is key. The gospel teaches us you're evil, but you're a child. You're a sinner, but you're a son. No other religion, no other faith model, no other God, no other philosophy of life Uh, brings together in one place the sinfulness of who we are, the evil and the ugly of who we are with the mercy and grace and love of God. No other faith system does that in the history of the world. No other other faith system or faith model says brings together the mercy of God and the love of God in one place together as it crosses over our sinfulness. That's an amazing thing. And on and, and one hand, Jesus says, you are more ungrateful, you are more evil than you ever imagined, but on the other hand, you are more redeemable by God's sheer grace in Jesus. You are more redeemable than you ever dreamed. Think about this. If the key to salvation is I'm gonna live a good life, I'm gonna obey, then I get to go to heaven, it's gonna make you a very intolerant person. It's gonna make you a very judgmental and arrogant person. You're gonna always be competing against other people and constantly jealous of other people. But Jesus Christ dying on the cross, what does he say? Father, destroy them because they don't know what they're doing. Father, ruin their lives because they don't know what they're doing. No, he says, Father, forgive them because they don't get it. And knowing and personalizing that he's talking about you. He's saying, Father, they are ungrateful and entitled and arrogant and evil, but forgive them. That's gonna make you very tolerant 
it's gonna make you very forbearing, it's gonna make you very forgiving. To know that Jesus Christ, the high king, we're about to enter, we're about a month away uh, from the Advent season and where we're gonna go into the life of Jesus in a very particular way. We'll probably go all the way back to the earlier part of Luke chapters one and two and talk about the birth of Jesus. Advent is coming, winter is coming, Advent is coming, right? Um, and to know that Jesus Christ is the high king who came down, he was born in a manger, he was born poor. And he lived a life in poverty. And on the cross, he was cosmically poor. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've lost the Father. The Father was the center of his life. In him, the Father was his wealth. The Father was his power. The Father was his comfort. The Father was his majesty. The Father, in the Father, he had ultimate potential. He was the king. That meant he was successful. He had ultimate status as the son of the most high God. But he lost the Father, and that means he's lost everything. And now what do you see? Jesus Christ is powerless and vulnerable and helpless. And he suffered. And they didn't just take his cloak and tunic. They took everything. He was naked on the cross. And he wasn't just hungry. He was thirsting, not just, I mean, he was thirsting, for, I'm sure, physically, but he was hungering for the Father who had departed from him. This is the cosmic hunger. This is the cosmic uh, discomfort. And so the, he's a son. That's his status. That's his title. But he's suffering, and he's weeping, and he's lost. He's defeated. Oh, and they hated him. They mocked him. They insulted him. They threw things at him. They struck him in the face, and, and, they, and they cursed him, and they said, if you are who you say you are, come down. They were gloating over him, ridiculing him, insulting him. They're saying, if you are who you say you are, come down. Turn it around, and we'll follow you. They hated him. They beat him. They betrayed him. Why? For his people, for our sins, for us. We are the sinners. We are the ungrateful. We're the evil. We deserve the poverty and the suffering and the defeat to be cast out, but Jesus got the poverty. He got the suffering. He was ultimately defeated, and he was cast out. Isaiah 53 says he was cast out of the land of the living. He was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. To be crucified outside the city, you see, inside the gates, you're safe. Outside the gates, it's just danger. It's just danger. And Jesus received all that. Why? He got the poverty. Why? So that we could have ultimate wealth in him. He got the suffering. Why? There's this passage in the Bible as he's suffering and dying. There's a criminal that's crucified next to him who sees who he is. And he says, I want you to remember me. And what does Jesus say? No. All of you all mocked me and made fun of me? No. That's not what he says. He says, today you will be in paradise He's attracted to the weak. He's attracted to the suffering. He's attracted to those who are defeated. He's attracted to people who are being hated and mocked. And so what you have, that's the prerequisite. If you're feeling that way, if you're experiencing that way, your heart is probably more open than anyone else in this room to hear the good news of Jesus, that he was mocked for you, insulted for you, that he was tried and arrested for you. He was accused of for you. He was gossiped about for you. He was betrayed for you. He suffered for you, bled for you, worked and groaned and died on the cross for you. So the weaker you are, the stronger you become. Look at Jesus and look to Jesus. He experienced the ultimate cosmic discomfort and then received the ultimate comfort. And he says, that is for you. That's gonna be for you. 
He experienced cosmic defeat for you so we would have victory in him. He went to the depths. We talk about walking a mile, walking an extra mile. He went to the depths from heaven to earth to the depths in the grave for us. He went all the way. He went all the way to the depths, lost, sacrificed his rights as a son so that we could be sons of the Most High. That is ultimate status. That's the only validation and approval and comfort and wealth that you need. Look at the goodness of God. Look at the faithfulness of God through Jesus. Jesus himself placed himself in the ultimate position, the ultimate posture of vulnerability so that we could have power. He didn't just pray for it, man. He gave it. He did good, didn't he? So we would have power and ultimate comfort in the Father, the victory of the resurrection of Jesus, that we could have the status of sons. And when he was all done, you know what he said? I'm satisfied. That was, he says, I'm blessed. My body is falling apart. I've, the Father has departed from me, and I'm blessed. That's what he says. Blessed through the brokenness. Real love, what is it? Jesus didn't just desire for our flourishing. He died to assure it. And so he completely reverses our values. Does that move you? Does that get you? Because his uh, values, because the world's values have been reversed by Jesus through his values, we have the power then to completely reverse what we value. The gospel completely then changes our attitude towards other people as a result. This is the end of stavishness, the end of gossip. This is the end of malice. This is the end of vengefulness and jealousy. This is the end of envy, comparing yourself with other people. Friends, it goes even wider, societally. Why is it a new society? It's the end of racism. All racism is, is superior versus inferior. You believe you're race is superior. This is the end of classism. What you make and what you do as a society is better than what other classes make in their, and, and what they do. This isn't socialism, right? Because that's classism. This isn't Marxism because that's classism. This isn't liberalism. Liberalism is what? Us versus them, ultimately, right? That's still classism. D.A. Carson, great scholar, he says this. The church is a place of natural enemies. That means that only through the gospel can people totally, who are totally different come together and be one. Set aside your natural tendencies. Some of you today, you need to forgive some people. Some of you today here, you need to reconcile with one another. Or maybe outside of this place, maybe you need to forgive your families, or your parents. Does that mean that now you gotta, you, everything goes back to normal? No, it takes time. It's a process. It, it, you, can only go, you can only trust as far as they're trustworthy, but you can still forgive. You can still turn the cheek and provide the possibility for welcome again. You can do that. Set aside your natural tendencies, your natural lifestyles, your natural desires, your natural agendas. You need to be intentional. You need to work at that for oneness here for the gospel. Can you do that? Jesus gives us the power for that. That's how you become a new society. Let's pray.